Take your Bibles, please, and uh, we'll go to the book of Mark and chapter 1. We're going to continue looking at the gospel of Mark for uh, quite some time, and um, so I was reading and studying this week, I was just impressed about the simplicity of Mark's gospel and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and how he is so much put to the forefront and the center. And it just struck me that we so quickly fill up our lives, our Christian lives, with other things. The things of religion, the things of church, the things of um, Christianity, or better, maybe better put, churchianity. Churchianity. But the gospel is very much simply about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to look this morning about this man named John the Baptist and his message and how he came preaching a message to the people of Israel in a time when a message like his, in, by man's standard, probably is the most inappropriate message. Of all their history, of all their wanderings away, this is one area of history where the people of Israel were following so closely the worship of the one true God. And yet John the Baptist came preaching the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's read together Mark chapter 1 verses 2 through 8 and then we're going to flip over to Matthew and we'll read Matthew 3 and the first 27 verses there. But first of all, the book of Mark chapter 1 and we'll read from 1 to 8. It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then over to the book of Matthew in chapter 3, and we'll read the first 12 verses of that. And it says this, Now in those days, there's a lot of repetition, but it's a Good to read it all for context. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But many he saw, but sorry, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. 
The axe is already laid, the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray, shall we? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for the, this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O God, for our servant King. And Father, as Joel was reminding us of that great scene in the upper room when Jesus got up from the table took off his outer robe, and he wrapped himself in a towel, picked up a bowl of water, and began to wash his disciples' feet. And Father, how confronting and how convicting that must have been. And Father, his words to Peter, unless I wash with you, sorry, unless I wash you with you, you have no part with me. And Father, we give you thanks this morning that we who have come to faith in Jesus Christ have been washed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we can join with him. Father, we give you thanks this morning that we sit in this place resting in Christ's finished work. But Father, there is a strong message that John the Baptist brought. He brought it to the people of God that they needed to repent of sin because the king was coming. And Father, we ask you this morning that the Holy Spirit would speak to all of us to challenge us and convict us about how we are living for our Savior, whether or not we are living with hearts fully and completely and utterly devoted to him, or we're living half-hearted and somewhat hypocritical lives. Father, we ask you this morning that you would speak to us as we come before you and we open the scriptures together, and we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a day of compromise with sin. It's a day of spiritual hypocrisy and complacency. It's a day when the king's coming was and is imminent, and they were nowhere near ready to receive him as he truly is the king of kings and lord of lords. It's a day when God raised up a man, he filled him with the Holy Spirit, and charged him to deliver a message of repentance and faith and promise. It's both John the Baptizer's day and it's our day. Israel in the first century desperately needed to hear his message. And the Australian church in 2016 desperately needs to hear that message again. Who was this man? He was just a man. What was his message and why do we need to hear it? What was their response and what must our response be to John's message This morning I want us to consider three things, and you got them on your note sheet there. Number one, the messenger. Number two, the message. And number three, the response that they made. So first of all, the messenger, John the Baptist. I'm going to give him Chuck Swindoll's name, John the Baptizer, not John the Baptist, because Baptists didn't come until about 1,600 years later. But he was John the Baptizer, all right? I want you to notice he was the last and the greatest of the prophets. Like Jeremiah before him, John the baptizer was born the son of a priest and came preaching as a prophet. Jeremiah's father was Hilkiah, the priest of God, and John's father was Zechariah, who was also a priest of God. 
And like Jeremiah before him, John the Baptist came preaching and he was hated by the spiritual authorities of his day because his message, because of what he said. He was ridiculed, he was imprisoned, he was harshly treated. And like Jeremiah before him, he struggled during his ministry with doubt. And yet God greatly used this man. Like Elijah, his lifestyle, his clothing, and his message reflected a man totally consumed by God in order to be used for God. He came as a prophet, an authorized spokesman of God. His words had the validity and the authority of Scripture as surely as the other Old Testament prophets of God. Notice, first of all, John came unlike any of the religious authorities of his day. He lacked the priestly clothes to which he was entitled. He lacked the phylacteries and the flowing robes of the Pharisees. He lacked the rich clothing and the smooth speech of the scribes and the Pharisees. He carried no sacrificial knife and no bowl for the blood. He carried no censer for fire and no incense to burn. He carried no scroll, no ink, no paper like the scribes and the lawyers. John came unlike the the spiritual authorities and religious authorities of his day. Secondly, John came clothed in the rough clothing of the wilderness. Like Jesus who had nowhere to lay his head. Like Paul who suffered immensely for the Lord. Like like countless men and women who knew nothing but the hardships of servant life. John came. He was not a soft man. used to soft life. Thirdly, John came out of the loneliness known only by those whom God chooses to use. It's interesting that for 30 plus years he lived in obscurity, unheard of, unseen, being prepared by God to preach for less than a year the message that would bring revival to God's people and usher in the Messiah. John came filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from the womb, John was filled with the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the promise, sorry, the promise given to Zechariah. He lived in submission following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And John came finally, number five, charged to deliver God's message. John the baptizer was a man set apart and devoted to God to preach the most difficult message of all to a self-righteous, half-hearted, hypocritical people who claimed God's name for their own. Revival begins with the house of God, not the world. Listen, God is still seeking for men and women who are willing to be like John. Men and women who are willing to be alone with God. The Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles were men that were often alone with God. I don't know if you've noticed, reading Paul's life, there was a period for 14 years that he disappeared into the wilderness and he was completely alone with God as God broke him and changed him and filled him with his message and an understanding of the gospel. John the Baptist was a man who was willing to be alone. And Jesus is seeking today for men and women who are willing to be alone, to stand alone and speak against the sin that most of us tolerate and trifle with. Men and women who are willing to pay the price in standing for God, regardless of how great that price is. The world we live in, listen, is plagued by a convenient, compromising, watered down, and mostly hypocritical church. That's a pretty harsh word of judgment, isn't it? But you look around. I've been really thinking about the church and where we're at and what's going on in the world we live in. And I have to say again, the world we live in is plagued 
by a church that is convenient, compromising, watered down, and mostly hypocritical. That's where we live. Its effect is little to nothing. Jesus called us to be salt and light. We are to bring the cleansing, purifying, salty influence of God to a lost world. Salt savors, but it also stings and it bites. We are to be light to the world, preaching the gospel. We're to preach repentance from sin. We're to preach faith in God. We're to preach obedience to God, found the Bible. We are to preach love for God, love for our neighbors, love for our brothers, and even... Love for our enemies. We are to shine the blinding, hot light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ into this world. The Lord Jesus Christ is still seeking men and women who will speak for God. And the question that falls on my heart, and I want to put it to your heart as well, who will you, will I pay the price? John was willing to pay and did pay the ultimate price. Will you and I, refuse to compromise with sin. And stop for a second. How many of us in this last week can look back over the course of the week, the things we did and the things we said, the places we went, all of that, and can summarize, you know what? We compromise with sin. On uh, New Year's Eve, got home. I wasn't going to share this, but I will anyway. And... Uh, they had U2 live in Paris. And I kind of like U2, so I, I flipped it on. And I was really, I was just so discouraged watching it. He got up halfway through the, the, conf, the conference, the sermon, the, no, not the sermon, uh, the concert, that's what it is. And he made a, courage, I made a comment about the courage to compromise. And then he was reading a passage from Psalm 23, and he picked up the paperback Bible, and he tore it in half, and he just threw it in the crowd. And I just shuddered with horror when we deleted it. It was recorded. And um, you know what? How often do we compromise? How easily do we compromise with sin? And it starts with a little compromise someplace and it gets worse and worse and worse and we keep compromising more and more and more. And one of the things that strikes me about looking at John's life is he was a man who refused to compromise. He preached the truth no matter what it cost him. He preached against the sin of adultery, Herod and the wife and all of that, and he ultimately lost his head for it, literally lost his head for it. He refused to compromise. Well, you and I refuse to compromise with the truth of the Bible. John refused to compromise. Will we stand for God even if it means standing totally alone? In much of life and his death, John was alone with God. Will we resolve to be holy and pure and fit for the master's use? That was the resolve of John and hundreds, even thousands more like him throughout the history of the church. I'm pleading with us all, me included. Jesus commanded us in the Gospels to count the cost of discipleship. Jesus taught us that unless we are willing to die to sin, to die to the world, to die to ourselves, unless we are willing to take up the cross, unless we are willing to love him so that all other loves are as hatred, unless we are willing to follow him wherever he leads us, he said this, you cannot... I didn't say it would be hard or difficult or awkward to be my disciple. He said, you cannot be my disciple. Again, I'm pleading with you. 
And I place a call upon myself. John was raised by God to be the messenger of God to his generation. Are we willing to be the messengers of God to our generation? To stand and preach uncompromisingly the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible. Refusing to compromise with sin. And I'm putting that charge before all of us, me included. Notice, secondly, the message of John the baptizer. He said, the king is coming and you're not ready. The Bible describes in the life of David the coming or the returning of that king back to his people. You remember the story? Absalom had rebelled against the nation and David had been driven out of the city and he went up the, the Mount of Olives, I think it is, and he had his head covered and he's barefoot and he's weeping. And they go through all that struggle with Absalom as one army and Joab in charge the other army. And it all ends up with Joab taking three darts or three spears and thrusting them through Absalom's heart. And the rebellion is crushed. And David, as the king of his people, is brought back to the city and he's welcomed as a returning, coming king. Jesus describes the parables of Matthew 25, 14 to 30, the king's return. And in those days, a king's coming to his kingdom meant a gathering of all the subjects of the kingdom together. And each would give an accounting to the king of their activities, their words, their deeds, and the king's judgment of his subjects. Punishment was meted out on the unfaithful and the disobedient, or rewards were showered on the faithful and the obedient. And John's message to his people was this, the king is coming and you're not ready to receive him because of your sin. I mentioned before, of all the times in Israel's history to preach repentance by a man's reckoning, this was not it. Israel had delved repeatedly into idolatry for centuries, but Israel had been thoroughly purged of its idolatrous tendencies in the 70-year exile into Babylon and Assyria. And Israel was now, during the time of John's living, enjoying a seeming unbroken return to the worship of the one true God. Yet, John the baptizer's message was this, repent. John was warning them, You're not ready for his appearing. Their sin may not have been the idolatry and the adultery of the bygone centuries, but their sin, no matter how trivial they or we see it, it was unacceptable to the coming king. Sin of any amount and any kind is unacceptable to God. Consider this. You and I may never have committed adultery, but what about sexual immorality? How many of us are guilty of lust? How many of us notice an attractive woman? This is the guys mostly, but notice an attractive woman and the one look becomes a gaze and the gaze lingers way too long. And we have lusted after that woman that we've seen on the street corner or wherever she might be. And Jesus said, if you lust with your eyes, you have committed adultery. One of the most profound things about the Gospels and Jesus speaking to his people is how tightly And how crisply he draws the line between sin and disobedience and obedience. You and I may not be in the practice of lying, but what about incomplete honesty? What about exaggeration or flattery? What about hypocrisy? Are we the same person wherever we are and with whomever we are speaking? What about self-centeredness? Whose glory? Whose benefit? Whose comfort? 
And whose will are we seeking? I think I've told you before that I've been just struck by one of the phrases I read about Jesus in the book of John recently. It says that I can do nothing on my own initiative, but I constantly seek the will of the one who sent me. Jesus was saying, listen, I don't do anything by myself. I'm always seeking for the will of my Father, and I'm striving to do His will all the time. He was totally God-centered, not self-centered. What about greed? Do we covet what God has blessed our neighbor with, but has chosen not to bless us with? What about pride? How easy pride just sneaks its way in there, and we start thinking that we're better than everybody else for one reason or another. Do we glorify God in everything that we do? Do we give thanks to God, which glorifies Him for everything that we receive? Listen, this Christian life is far more than a religious observance that God desires, and that's John's message to his people, and our message today is this. It's far more than Sunday morning go to church religion. It's far more than God is my co pilot to see to quote one little bumper sticker i saw it's a radically god-centered god-honoring life it's following the lord seeking the lord with our whole heart reading through the book of second chronicles to finish up my reading for the year and i was struck by how many of the kings that said they sought the lord with their whole heart hezekiah and jehoshaphat and josiah they were blessed and greatly used of god because those men sought him with all their heart God's desire for us is a living, spirit-filled, spirit-empowered relationship of faith and love and obedience to Him. God desires us to be a people who are holy, not just a bit better than all those around us. God desires us to be a people who are living with one desire to glorify God in everything we do. And the reason why John came out of the wilderness preaching that message of repentance to prepare the way for the king is because they... The people of his day had settled into a religious observance. They were worshiping, but their hearts were far from God. And John came on the scene saying, listen, you need to repent. And the first thing there he tells them is, number one, they and we need to repent of their sin. Repentance is a radical change of mind about God and about sin. We must see sin, first of all, as an offense against God. How many of us see sin, first of all, as what gives me trouble or what ruins my day or tears apart my friendships or tears apart my relationships? We got it out of order. We need to see sin, first of all, as an offense and an insult against God. We must see sin, secondly, as what breaks God's law, goes against his word. We must see sin as that which fails to glorify God. And then we need to see sin for how it affects us and tears apart our relationships and ruins our lives and so on. We need to have a radical change of heart about God and about sin. We must see God as absolutely holy. I'm convinced of this, how we see sin and how we see God affects every other part of our life. We need to see God as absolutely holy. We must see sin like leprosy as repulsive and vulgar. The reason the church has lost its salty effect and the intensity of its shine into this world is that we have too long compromised and trifled and played with sin. 
Number two, we need, to, we need and they need to confess their sin. They were baptized confessing their sins. It was a public confession, a repentance and baptism that would be proven by its fruit. John said in Matthew about bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, live out that change of perspective that you're claiming as you're confessing your sins. Live out what it means to change and put them aside. All the country of Judea and Jerusalem were down there by the banks of the Jordan and John is baptizing people and as they're coming up out of the water or maybe going down into the water, they're confessing their sin out loud publicly. They're admitting their guilt and they're being baptized to show a complete and radical change of living their lives. We need to confess our sins and faults to one another. We need to be willing to be held accountable to one another, not to be in control of each other, but for growth purposes. We need to realize that in order to grow We need to be held accountable at times. I submit myself into Daryl's accountability and hold myself. He holds me accountable because he knows I have to have that relationship to keep me on track and vice versa. It's so important to have that relationship. Thirdly, we need and they needed to believe the promises, promises about the coming king. What did John give them as the promises of God? Listen to what he says there. He says, there is one coming after me who is mightier than me, one who is coming. He's promising that there's somebody coming behind him. It's a promise he made. What else did John say about the one who is coming? He's mightier than I. John was the greatest of all the prophets. In all the history of Israel, the prophets were kind of the peak beneath the kings, and John was the greatest of one of those. And he's saying, listen, there's somebody coming after me. What did John say about him? He's claiming the one who is coming after him is God. Listen, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who alone can baptize with the Holy Spirit? God. That's it. What the old prophets used to say? They would say, listen, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Meaning what? God has anointed him with the Holy Spirit. God alone anoints a person with the Holy Spirit. John is preaching that the one coming after him is God the Son. God, in fact, he will baptize with fire. Again, it's another promise. What does it mean? The fire could be seen as a couple different things. It's a secondary description of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, where it says the tongues of fire appeared in the heads of all the different apostles in that upper room, the 120 that were there. It's a picture of that, perhaps. It's also maybe a picture of the persecution, the trouble and strife and travail of the life of those believers. It would be marked by struggle. Think about all the apostles. How many of them died a natural death? One out of 13, all the rest died a violent death as a result of their faith in God. There's another way to see this fire, and I want to suggest this to you as well. When he says he will baptize with fire, I think he's also talking about an image of the effect that God would bring through the disciples and us on the world around them and around us mean that the influence of the Spirit of God in us ought to have an incredible effect. Cleansing and purifying. Fire gets rid of all kinds of rubbish and debris. The salt cleanses and purifies. Light shines and illumines and displays what's really there. The effect that God is having or strives to have into the world around us ought to be like a fire. Significant and profound and life-changing. 
From Matthew chapter 3, John promised something else. He says, he will winnow his wheat. It speaks of the gathering of all the nations for judgment. The wheat, which are the sheep, will be gathered and stored in the barn, and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Do you know what winnowing looks like? Anybody know? A couple guys. Winnowing basically is when they they threshed out the grains. They bring all the wheat in. They take these big hammer-like sledgehammer things, and they beat it. Beat the snot out of it for a while, and then it would kind of break it all up. And what you had left was all this mixture of grain and, and chaff and bits of broken wheat and stalk and so on. And what they would do is they'd take it up to a high hill and get a big shovel. And then on a windy day, they'd lift it up in the air like this. And as it would go up in the air, the wind would catch all the chaff and all the useless stuff that was no good for anything and blow it all away, and the heavy grains of wheat would fall down again. And what John is saying in Matthew 3 is that Jesus is going to do something slightly different. He's going to separate all the the grains of wheat and put them into his barn. It speaks of his place of rest, his place of eternity, and all the rest of it will be burned up. And then you say, well, what's the point of that? They were believing what John was saying. You say, how do you know they were believing? It's very simple. They responded in obedience. They were baptized. They heard his message and they believed, believed the promise of the one who was coming. Listen, salvation is belief in God to keep his promises. That's what salvation is. If you think for yourself, you know, I believe that Jesus was born, that he was crucified, but he rose again, and therefore I'm saved, my answer is, no, you're not. Now, that's a bit confronting for some of you, but it's not the truth. Salvation is belief in God. The promises that God made to us. When God promised him a child in his old age, Abraham believed God, and his faith was counted as righteousness. The Judeans and Jerusalemites trusted God, the message that John gave them, and they were baptized, repented, and confessing so that they would be ready. We trust God to keep his promises. And listen to the promises God made us. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's a promise he makes. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a promise. Receive Christ as your king and your savior, and you will have the right to be the sons and daughters of God. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the sons and daughters of God. They're all promises. And God stands there saying, here's my promises. Believe the promises. Believe me. Belief in God is what saves us. I know that Christ's death purchased my salvation because the Bible tells me so. I know that Christ's death paid the penalty for my sin because the scriptures tell me so. I know that Jesus was raised from the dead because the Bible tells me so. I trust God to keep the promises he made to me. And I'm so convinced of the reality of God's promises kept that even though I can't see them, I'm convinced that they're real. And so I live as if those promises are already kept. I live in obedience to his word. I live in submission to God's word and God's spirit. Salvation is trusting God to keep his promises They responded to John's message. And the question is, what is our response going to be? And that's the third point. What is our response? What is the message for us, Casey Bible Church? They needed to prepare for their king's coming. And we had better be ready for our king's return. 
Two reasons. I'll give them both to you. Reason number one, the king of kings has come. He kept the promise the first time. He will keep it the second time. The king has come as a humble servant riding a donkey. The king has come, as John reminded us, wearing the rough towel of a suffering servant and a slave. The king has come carrying a bowl of water to wash his people's feet so that they might be a part of him. The king has come with displays of God's power, preaching the gospel, working miracles, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, and casting out demons. The king has come and submitted to the death of a common slave on the cross. The king has come. He's suffered and he's died and he's risen again. The king has returned to his father's right hand and is enthroned in glory. And the king has come, listen, to accomplish our salvation on a cross. And we had better be ready because the reason number two is the king is returning very soon. Someone was asking about the book of Revelation a couple days ago, so I'll give you this. The Bible says the king will return on a white stallion, riding it, a conquering, victorious warrior. The king will return with a sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It speaks of judgment. The king will return wearing his white robes of righteousness that are dipped in blood. The king will return with a name written on his thigh that only he knows. The king will return as the great shepherd of the sheep to separate his sheep and his goats. And the sheep king... Sorry, the king will gather his sheep into the barn, those who are trusting him into his fold to forever be with him. And let me ask you a question this morning. You're sitting here. Will you be one of his sheep gathered into his barn to forever be with him? What answer did the Spirit of God just give you in the back of your head? Will you be one of those sheep that will be gathered and separated to be with Christ forever? The king also will cast out the goats that are refusing to trust him into outer darkness where there will only be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Are you going to be one of those? One of the sheep or one of the goats? Think about those three words I just used. Weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Weeping. Right now, some of us laugh at the message of the gospel. But let me assure you, In that day, you will weep in utter despair, wailing. Right now, we hoot and we holler and we wail and we party hard. But then in that day, you will wail in unceasing agony. Listen, gnashing of teeth. Right now, the world we live in is striving to fulfill every pleasure and every desire without any limits whatsoever. But then in that day... They'll grind their teeth in unending endurance of the pain of hell. Remember the story of Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man? And they're all down in glory there. And the rich man looks across at Abraham and he says, Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the cool water and just cool the very tip of my tongue. And you know what Abraham's response is? Nope. Can't go. Can't cross. Listen. Right now, without realizing or recognizing it, we live enjoying uncounted graces from God. But in that time in hell, you will not know even the slightest or the most minute graces of God at all. And Jesus, who suffered on the cross and heard that word coming out of his mouth, forsaken, Unbelievers in hell will know that word unlike anybody else. 
what it means to be totally forsaken. The king is returning. The king is coming back then. The king is returning. His return is so close. We just look around us. Look at what's going on in the news around the world. The king's return is close. John the Baptist came preaching a message like that to a religious, half-hearted, hypocritical, compromising people. My question is, is that us? Are we a religious, half-hearted, hypocritical, compromising people who claim the name of Christ but live any way we want, counting the naming in the name of Christ as just a ticket out of hell? That's not what God wants from us. He wants so much more. The servant king has already come once to display and show us love unlike any other. Love so great that it displayed itself by sending Jesus Christ to first endure our place under God's judgment. Only one man, only one man knows the awful torment that the unbeliever faces. Only one man has felt its loneliness, its pain, and its thirst, and that's Jesus himself. The Bible says that he for our sake was made to be sin so that we might have the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says that he for our sake was made to be poor so that we might be made rich. And he for our sake endured the righteous fury of God's wrath against sin so that we would not have to. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, I'm pleading with you. Number one, repent of your sin. Turn your back on it. Have nothing further to do with it. Seek God's forgiveness in prayer. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. He will keep his promises. Listen, all of us will fail each other sooner or later to one degree or another. But Jesus Christ will never fail to keep his promises. He will never let us down. Confess openly and admit and declare before all men that he is Lord. Turn and follow him wherever he leads you. You look at the stories of the men and women through the scriptures who followed God without hesitation and without compromise. They lived difficult, hard, harsh lives. But knew the greatest of blessings. Knew the greatest of joy in being with the Lord Jesus for those of us who, have, who are believers who have claimed Christ and have slid somehow into a Pharisaic lifestyle of religion and churchianity, for those of us who are living one foot on the narrow way and one foot straining to drag as much of the broad way with us, listen, John's message is really the same. Repent. Turn your back on that half-heartedness. Seek the Lord with all your heart. Follow him and cling to him and follow him wherever it goes. But listen, Jesus came to call disciples to himself, men and women who are willing to submit in total obedience to him, men and women who have and will count the cost. It is a costly life. We've been praying for revival in this church. A number of us who get together and pray on Wednesday nights. Historically, revival has always begun with the church, not the world around us. John came with a message to prepare God's people uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ's arrival. And the message is the same for us today. Repent. Change your mind about God. Change your mind about sin. Change your mind about holiness and stop compromising with sin. By the way, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to us. 
Because this message convicted and challenged my heart deeply. How many times and how easily I slide into that compromise and let something go and just kind of try and skirt the edges of God's word and kind of work my way through hanging on to as much of the world as I can. In the end, the message is the same. Repent. Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. Loving Father, this morning we come before you and we give you thanks for men like John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Father, we thank you for the way that you have filled him. You did fill him with your spirit. Father, you took him into a wilderness place and there he lived alone with you. And you taught him and you instructed him and you convicted him about the sin of your people. And when the time was exactly right, the time was fulfilled, you sent him into the Jordan area to preach a gospel, a gospel of repentance, a gospel of confession of sin, a gospel of believing the promises of the living God. And Father, his message that you gave him sparked a revival. The scripture tells us that all Judea and Jerusalem went out to him to hear him preach and were confessing their sins and being baptized and committing themselves to live a life that was different. And Father, we just give you thanks for that message. And Father, we realize that the church in Australia, a church in the Western world, is today very much like Israel. Half-hearted, compromising, ineffective. And Father, we realize that the Lord Jesus called us to be salt, to have a biting sting, a purifying, cleansing effect. Father, he called us to be lights on a hill, shining brightly to show the way to God, to preach the gospel. Father, we cry out to you tonight, this morning, sorry, Lord. We cry out to you that you would work in our hearts that you would change us, you would convict us of the reality of sin, the depth of the holiness of the living God, and, Father, our need to live a holy lifestyle. And, Father, we pray that you would do a great work in Casey Bible Church, that you would start a revival in us. Father, turn us again to seek you out with all of our hearts. Turn us again, O God, to be a people of prayer. Turn us again, O God, to live holy lives no matter who is watching. And Father, we cry out to you for these things. We ask you, Father, for your blessing, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We're done.